Jesus is a lot of things to a lot of people, isn't he? And, uh, oh, I wish you could be in the room this morning. I'm sorry that you can't. Uh, It was not a decision that we arrived at lightly, but I can tell you when Jesus promised that where two or three are gathered, I am there among them, with them. He is here, and I trust that even though the internet wasn't in play when he first said those words, I trust that Jesus is with you where you are, whether you're worshiping with a small group of people, with a family, or worshiping alone with us. Um, And whether you're watching this live right now on Sunday morning or you're watching this later in the week, uh, we are glad that you have chosen to join us as we begin this new sermon series. Um, And as we do, as we think about Jesus being the subject, I wonder, what what was your favorite subject in school? Uh, as you think back, uh, what, maybe middle school, maybe grade school, maybe high school, maybe it was the same all along, uh, maybe it changed over time, I don't know. Uh, when I was thinking about that, the first thing my mind went to was television. Television was my favorite subject, especially in middle school and high school. It seemed whenever I was doing homework, I had the TV on, and if I could get away with it, I would just do homework on my commercial breaks and then watch TV uh, the rest of the time. And if I couldn't, uh, I was usually doing my homework as quickly as possible so that I could watch more television. How many uh, Gen Xers remember Saved by the Bell? Uh, That was my favorite television show was Saved by the Bell, and it follows a group of students through middle school and high school. And that was right in the midst of those years for me. But on a more serious note, I think my favorite subject early on was math. And as I Near the end of high school, I fell in love with reading and with English and literature and those types of things and ended up studying that and getting my undergrad in that. And then going to seminary, that served me quite well because all you do in seminary is read and write about it and read some more and write about it and read some more and write about it. So, um, so those were some favorite subjects of mine. Maybe you had different uh, subjects that were a favorite of yours. But as we shift gears with this series, I had to smile uh, this week. I prepared the material majority of this content on Monday when coronavirus was still something that was kind of on the periphery. We were starting to see uh, some things, you know, change uh, nationally and globally, but it hadn't really seemed to hit home much. And then on Wednesday, things took a big step forward with the pandemic and some travel restrictions, and uh, things have escalated steadily since then. So as a leadership team and staff, we had to make some decisions uh, about whether or not we would would hold a meeting. Um, And we were thankful that technology enabled us to both proclaim the gospel, to minister, to provide opportunity for fellowship, and at the same time to honor our elected officials and our government officials, which were requesting that we would be really sensitive to the size of gatherings that we would hold. And we came to the conclusion that the most loving thing that we could do for our community was to honor those requests and to provide an online avenue for people uh, to engage in worship. And then... I opened the outline again, anew and afresh, and looked through everything that we would be talking about. And this idea that Jesus is the subject, he is to be the subject. It is so easy to get distracted by the things of this world, by the things going on in current events, by the focus that we place on many, many good things that just were never intended to be the main thing. Jesus is intended to be the main thing, to be the subject 
of our lives. And this series was chosen actually way back towards the end of 2019 as I was planning out the sermon series for 2020. I had this one strategically placed in my mind to start us focusing on Jesus, carry us right into Easter. And uh, then in the light of recent events, I feel like it was something God had in mind for us to be focusing on and studying uh, for this time. Now, our mission here at Linwood, which we talk about every week, but there's a reason that we do that. Our mission is to reach people for Christ, to give them a place to belong, and to help them grow in their faith. That first and foremost, we want to be a people that are reaching others for Christ. If we are disciples, if we are followers of Jesus, that means that, that we are reaching people on his behalf, not reaching people to make our church bigger, not reaching people to to share our personal views, but reaching people for Christ, to make an introduction between the people that we know with the person that we follow. We reach people for Christ. Then we give them a place to belong. We believe at Linwood that the world is in desperate need of belonging, people feeling that they belong somewhere, that they're recognized somewhere, that they're valued and appreciated for their participation somewhere. We want to give people a place to belong in God's family, and in our family of families. And then we help them grow in their faith. Once we reach them for Christ, once we give them a place to belong, then we help them grow in their faith. This is discipleship. This is helping people learn to follow Jesus step by step. And as we do that, Jesus is the subject in each of those three arenas. And I'm of the opinion that, that many churches have become very resistible to the culture. The culture doesn't want much to do with them. And in most cases, churches have focused on something other than Jesus. And I believe that the churches that focus on Christ, focus on taking Christ to the world, and focus on helping people fall in love with Jesus are the churches that become irresistible in their communities. They serve their communities, they impact their communities, and they help people to come into a relationship with Jesus. So Jesus is the subject is a really important series for us. It fits right in with our focus on discipleship this year. That's a whole year thing. It's not something we're just going to make a splash early on. Every series is oriented towards that and is oriented towards focusing on discipleship because discipleship is the one thing that changes everything. And we want it to change everything for every person that God entrusts with us. So in this series, we're going to make Jesus the subject corporately as a church, but also ask you to make Jesus the subject individually in in new ways, in more intentional ways, perhaps, than you ever have before. The format for the series will take each of the Gospels each week leading up to Easter, and we'll look at the Gospel, and we'll look at a main thing that that Gospel teaches us or shows us or presents to us about Jesus. We'll focus on an element of Jesus' nature that is seen specifically in each of those Gospels. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you've read all four Gospels, they're different. Much of the content is the same from Gospel to Gospel, and they don't present entirely different persons of Jesus, but they do present different elements of his nature. And I get a question often as a pastor, is like, why are there four Gospels? Why couldn't they just be consolidated into one? And why are some things the same and other things different? And the best answer that I've formulated to that question was to say, let's say you and me and two of our friends go watch a movie this afternoon. And a couple of months later, we're each sharing about that movie with a different audience. 
We would relate the movie to that audience in much the same way, but there would be differences, wouldn't there? I would share some things about that movie that had impacted me personally based on my background, and I would share things that I think would be meaningful to my audience based on their background. And the gospel writers do much the same thing. They're not different because they happened differently. They're different because people remember different things about those events and share them differently based on their audience. All of it happened. It's not like some got it right and some got it wrong. I believe all of it happened and all of it is true and all of it is the divinely inspired word of God. But based on the individual that is sharing that and the audience that they're sharing it to, they focus or emphasize different things. So today we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew. These are the first pages of the New Testament. And we're going to focus on the element of Jesus' nature that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And so as we consider that, we'll talk about what that means. But the reason that I focused on that is that that's the central message of the book of Matthew, of Matthew's Gospel. You see, Matthew was a Jew writing to a Jewish audience. And the significance of declaring that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was indeed the long-awaited Messiah was very, very important to him and to his audience. And so uh, we know a few things about Matthew, about uh, this tax collector turned gospel writer, which is really a pretty amazing story. You see, Matthew is called directly by Jesus while he's sitting in his tax collector booth. He also went by the name Levi, which indicates that he probably shouldn't have been a tax collector at all. He probably should have been leading people in worship. That was what the tribe of Levi and the Levitical priests were supposed to be doing, was leading people in worship. And instead, Levi had sort of become a traitor to his own people and had taken on the name Matthew and become a tax collector, which means he worked for the Roman government, which was occupying Israel at the time, and he extorted funds from his own people, turned over what was required to Rome, and kept the rest. So he was one of the lowest in society and becomes a really powerful example of how Jesus can transform a heart that has been surrendered fully to him. Matthew accepts the call to follow Jesus and in the process becomes so transformed that he doesn't go back to tax collecting when Jesus dies on the cross and is resurrected. No, Matthew continues to follow, continues to be a part of the church, and ends up writing a gospel account to his own people. So he's a powerful example of what Jesus can do in a fully surrendered heart. And I wonder, is your life a powerful example? Is your testimony, can you point to what your life was like before Jesus became the subject and what your life is like now that Jesus has become the subject? Does your life declare that Jesus is indeed the subject. I want to look at a passage that's right in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew. It's chapter 16. If you happen to have stolen one of our blue hardcover Bibles, it's on page 1524. But if you have your own Bible or you're going online, just catch up with us in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. I'll read it from the New International Version, and uh, then we'll look at this and, and try to understand the context and understand the significance of this passage that many scholars agree is the central key verse, key passage in the Gospel of Matthew. 
Here's what we read in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. Now, just to establish a little bit of context uh, geographically, there's a map on the screen. It's probably a little too small for you to see if you're watching on a screen, especially if it's on a phone or an iPad. But the map on the screen, right up at the top, there's a little red dot, and it says Caesarea Philippi. And then if you go down to the bottom third, there's a big blue lake. That's the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus had taken them quite a ways away from his main ministry context. And they're up at Caesarea Philippi, which was a vacation spot. So I like to think Jesus took the disciples on a little spiritual retreat, perhaps. And he gets them out of their normal context, which you have the advantage most of you are watching from home. You're not in your normal context for a Sunday morning. And you have that opportunity provides you a freshness, a new take, the ability to engage maybe in a different way. And he asks them, while he takes them up away from Capernaum, away from Nazareth, away from Jerusalem, which would have been off the map, and he asks them, who do people say I am? Like, who who does everybody else say that I am? And they answer, and they give him some, some ideas. And I could have made this sermon all about the significance of John the Baptist and Elijah and Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And I could have focused on Jesus' response to Peter, that you are the rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. But none of that is the subject. The subject of this passage is Jesus and the declaration Peter makes about Jesus and who Jesus is. So when Jesus asks in verse 15, what about you? Now he's focusing on the disciples. He's focusing on his followers. He's focusing on those who have chosen to leave everything behind and to follow Jesus and to learn from Jesus and to become an apprentice of Jesus. And he says, who do you say that I am? They don't pick one of the other options. They don't pick John the Baptist. They don't vote. It's not multiple choice. Peter makes this declaration. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And so it's essentially Jesus saying, forget about everyone else. And he's looking right at you and he's saying, who do you say I am? What does your life say about me? Does everyone around you recognize who is the subject of your life based on your actions, based on your words, based on the intention, based on the fruit that your life bears? And it brought to mind one of the the things that I remember most vividly about seminary it was when I walked into my New Testament 1 class. We had Old Testament 1 and 2, New Testament 1 and 2. New Testament 1 was a full semester just studying the Gospels, really, really in-depth. And at the beginning of that class, Dr. Kimberly Majeski looked at us and he, she said, the most important thing about you is what you think about Jesus. And she let those words hang in the room. And she was building upon a a quote by A.W. Tozer, and she shared that with us, that A.W. Tozer said that what comes to mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. But I love the way that she personalized it, and I love the way that she focused on what's the subject of our thoughts and the subject of our lives. Is it Jesus, 
Or is it anything else? Because when we frame our lives in that context, that the most important thing about you is what you think about Jesus. Jesus becomes the subject of everything important in our lives. Everything that matters in our lives. And if Jesus is the subject, that means a lot of really good things aren't. Now, they can be secondary, but they have to stay secondary. Jesus doesn't want to be first among equals. He wants to be first, and everything else is second. And that's the difference between something that's good and something that's first. Something that's positive and something that's primary. You see, Jesus is to be in the primary role. Not you, not your spouse, not your children, not your work, not money, not fame, not your extended family. All of these things are good things, but they must be secondary things. Jesus is to be first, to be the subject of our lives. I remember listening to a pastor named Louis Giglio speak at a Christian leadership conference, and he talked about the importance of this, and he talked about how God's plan A for your life is that your life would be focused on the fame and glory of Jesus Christ, that everything you do would be lived for that purpose, and everything else would be secondary to that purpose, that we live for the fame and glory of Jesus Christ and fall into his arms. And it was a powerful, powerful message for me to hear as a pastor that my church is not the subject of my ministry, Jesus is. That my family, my spouse, my children, my closest relationships are not the subject of my life and ministry, Jesus is. And the same is true for each and every one of his followers. In fact, my pain, my suffering, and your pain, and your suffering are meant to point you and to point others to Jesus. We shouldn't run from them. We shouldn't hide them. We shouldn't try to medicate them or avoid them. When we run into trials and challenges and we experience pain and suffering, that pain and suffering has the ability to point our eyes and others' eyes to Jesus to make him the subject of our lives consistently. And so... It brings to mind a couple of questions that I think are really important for us to grapple with on a regular basis, perhaps even a daily basis to be reminded of this. And I've heard pastors say these are questions that God might ask you on the day of judgment when we will all stand before God. There will be a couple of questions. And the first is, what have you done? What have you done? Have you lived a perfect, sinless life? Have you attained righteousness before the law? What have you done? Or have you sinned and fallen short? Scripture tells us, Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that presents a little bit of a problem. That we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're accountable to God for that. And so the second question is really important as well. The second question is, what have you done with God's Son? And God would ask this question, what have you done with my son? And this is getting to a really important thing that we call atonement theology at seminary. That doesn't fly so well in broader circles, but the real idea behind atonement theology is we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Somebody has to atone for that. Are you going to choose the self-atonement plan where you atone for your sin in an eternity separated from God? Or will you choose... Christ's atonement plan. To put this in another light, maybe if I leave this afternoon and head out onto 57th Street and turn left and bring it right up to 65 miles an hour and a cop sees me and pulls me over and writes me a ticket for 65 and a 40, 
I'm going to have to make atonement for that. Now, if he's feeling gracious, I'll just have to go down and write a check. If he's not feeling so gracious, I might go to jail with him and spend some time there and make additional atonement for that. And the same is true with our sins, with those things that separate us from God, those things that transgress against God's law. They create a need for atonement to be made. We can choose to make atonement for our sin or we can choose for God through his son, through his gracious provision in Jesus Christ, that Christ will make atonement for our sin on the cross. So the question, what have you done with my son, becomes a critical question. Because if we have ignored him, if we have been passively indifferent to him, if we have actively avoided him or vehemently opposed him, then we are on the self-atonement plan and we will have to atone for our sins. But if we have received him, if we have made him the subject of our lives, if we have chosen to follow him and make him first and foremost, then and then alone do we enter into the Christ atonement plan and we receive his grace and we receive his mercy and we trust in him and him alone and we even partner with him and find fellowship with him in joining him in his redemptive mission in this world that all would believe and that everyone would come into the Christ atonement plan that is God's desire for each and every one of us that not only would we trust Jesus and make him our atonement but that we would introduce others to him and give them the opportunity to do the same. That's why verse 16 is so pivotal and so important. When Simon Peter answers Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he is communicating the most important thing for him and for his Jewish audience, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Now, in your scriptures, if you have the word Christ printed there, there's probably a little footnote on it. And if you look down at the bottom, it says, or Messiah. You see, the scriptures come to us from the Greek language. That's the original language that the New Testament was written in. And in that language, Messiah got translated as Christ or Christos. But the Hebrew word Messiah was this word that means anointed one, the anointed one to deliver God's people. And so when Peter makes this declaration, he's saying, you aren't just a Messiah, you are the Messiah. You're not just a Christ, you are the Christ. You are the long-awaited Messiah that the prophets have spoken of, that God promised to his people, to Adam and Eve, right after the fall. In Genesis three fifteen. he says there will be a, a deliverer that will come and will trample sin and death under his feet. And that is the Messiah that Peter is declaring Jesus Christ is. This was huge for a Jewish audience. This was something that they would have all known immediately who this anointed one was. And not just anointed, but anointed to deliver God's people. Anointed for a special task. That's what that meant in the Old Testament. And so when, when kings or priests or prophets were anointed... There was oil that was poured over their heads. And so when it wasn't just a little bit. You see, when we anoint somebody here at church, we take a little vial of oil and we get a little on our finger and we anoint people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament times, when a king or a priest or a prophet was anointed for a special task, a whole cup 
of oil was poured over their head and it dripped down over their beard. And when David writes in Psalm 23, you anoint my head with oil, he's saying, God, you're so abundant in your anointing of me that that the oil is coming down and it's falling into my cup and my cup is now filling to the brim and flowing over. That's the abundance of God at work. That's the anointing that David understood. And we have that as well. In the New Testament, we don't see anointing with oil so much. Now we see anointing with the Spirit of God coming and resting upon people. We see this in Jesus' baptism. Matthew records it this way. In Matthew 3.16, he says this, that Jesus came to John the baptizer, and as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And so instead of oil, now we see the Spirit of God coming. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, when he kind of announces his public ministry in his hometown, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives, for the prisoners, and recovery for sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's talking about the Spirit of the Lord being upon him. In Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus had died on the cross and been resurrected and ascended up into heaven, right before he left, he told them, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And not long after that, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes into that place like a mighty rushing wind, and there were tongues of fire on people's heads. And that's the anointing of God coming onto the people of God to do the work of God, that Jesus would be the subject of their lives. And if you have been baptized, maybe you have a story yourself of coming up out of the water after you've made that public profession of your faith in Jesus Christ and you said, he's the subject of my life. And you felt a sense of God's withness, that the Spirit is with you, empowering you. This was a powerful, powerful thing for me. That's why I talk about baptism so much, that when I came up out of the water and 500 people I'd never met started clapping and cheering and praising God. And I realized, I have a witness. It matters. And he's with me. And it was a big step forward in my life and Jesus being the subject of my life. And so when we read these words that Messiah means the appointed one to deliver God's people, that's really important because what are they delivered from? Now, if you'd asked... Peter, and you'd have asked his original audience, they probably would have said, well, Roman oppression, duh. That's what they thought in that time, those people, they thought that Jesus was there to deliver them from their captors, to deliver them from the Roman government which had occupied them. But Jesus knew they had a much bigger problem than the Roman problem. He knew that they had a sin problem and an eternal death problem. And so the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus, came to deliver them not just from Rome, not just from their current circumstances. Jesus doesn't come just to deliver us from coronavirus or from some other problem that we have. He comes to deliver us from sin and death. That's what he was anointed to do. And that's what he does for us. And everything else comes in the context of that. So our bottom line today 
Our bottom line is that Jesus is the anointed one and you are the appointed one. Jesus is the anointed one, the long-awaited Messiah, and you are the one that he has appointed to go and to share the good news, appointed to make him the subject of your life and to point other people to him. And I know that this is true because the last words that Matthew shares give us insight into that appointing that Jesus gave to us. He was the anointed one, but the last words of Scripture in Matthew's Gospel say this, Then Jesus came to them, to the disciples, and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, I'm going to go and do a bunch of stuff. No, that's not what it says. In verse 19, it says, Therefore, you go, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. He's the anointed one to deliver us. He did it. He did it really well. He did a great job of delivering his people from sin and from death for all time if we will just choose the Christ atonement plan and then make that known to other people and teach them to obey everything he's commanded us. And he promises, surely, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. You see, Christ was anointed to proclaim the kingdom, to save sinners, to initiate the church, and he did it really, really well. And then he appointed his original disciples, and he appoints us by extension. We are appointed to serve the church, to make disciples, to bring heaven to earth and to give glory to God, to be transformed from the inside out, to exchange our sin for his righteousness, to exchange our death for his life, and to exchange hell for heaven here on earth and for eternity. And so we bring that transformation not only to ourselves but to others by making Jesus the subject of our lives, by saying he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He is the anointed one. We are the appointed ones. And there's no better example of this in Scripture than Matthew himself. That Jesus was the anointed one. And that Matthew was the appointed one. He ended up going from a tax collector, traitor to his own people, ripping them off and serving a foreign government to a gospel writer, to a fisher of men, to one through whom countless people have come to faith and who have made Jesus the subject of their lives. So what about you? Is Jesus the subject of your life? Not just the subject of your Sunday morning life or not just the subject of your devotional life but the subject of your whole life. That there's never a point in your life when Jesus is not the subject of your life. That he is the subject. And that your life declares that profoundly, consistently, and passionately. As always, you have opportunity to respond in faith. I pray that if you are watching online, if you are watching with a screen, that you will take some time in these next few moments as we sing this song, as we close in prayer, to, to make a declaration, to make a commitment, to respond in faith to God, to this message, to His Word. If you're interested in baptism, let us know that. Comment online, send us an email, marc at linwoodchurch.org. That'll get to me. We would love to hear from you. 
how you're responding in faith. Comment below or share it with us. Intercede for someone. Share the message with them. Take an opportunity to make Jesus the subject of your life. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. We praise you for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy. We pray that you will be the subject of our lives. That you will be first, you will be foremost. And that others will come to faith through us, through our witness, through our testimony, through the words that we say and the actions that we, that we do. We love you, Lord. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.